Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, an overdose crisis hits Minnesota. State Corrections Commissioner Paul Schnell on the push to hire more corrections officers statewide and a wrap-up of the U of M Gopher Coaches road trip. But first, Governor Tim Walz this week called stakeholders to the Capitol for a roundtable discussion on the price of insulin in Minnesota. MNN's Bill Werner is here with an update. Bill, why this talk after the legislature has already adjourned? Scott, it's because a deal on an insulin assistance program fell apart in the closing hours of the special session, which immediately followed the regular session in late May. Some say it was because of miscommunication, but others say that bill died because of last-minute lobbying by insulin manufacturers. The governor this week downplayed that political finger-pointing, urging lawmakers to come together get close to a compromise, get that deal that'll work. We'll call you back, we'll finish this thing, and we'll make a difference. The governor clearly indicating he'd be willing to call a special session of the legislature as long as there's a deal first. Walls turned up the pressure this week, setting up a Q&A meeting with individuals and groups that want the state to address the problem of high insulin prices. Leah Greenside is a small business owner whose daughter has type 1 diabetes, Greenside told the governor she and her husband as independent consultants get their insurance through Minsure. I had the experience this January. I was on the same insurance with the same insurance company but just a different plan and it took me 15 contacts, emails and phone calls over an 11-day period just to refill my daughter's insulin. Now, fortunately, we had another vial on hand. Otherwise, we would have been in this critical kind of situation that people find themselves. But 15 times I had to reach out to various parts of the healthcare system just to refill insulin in St. Paul, Minnesota with, you know, decent insurance. Nicole Smith-Holt and James Holt have been much in the news as this debate unfolded at the Minnesota Capitol. Their son, Alex Smith, died because he could not afford his insulin. $1,300 for one month for insulin and diabetic supplies. That's, that was twice his rent. Mm-hmm. I mean, so Alex, Alex's option was to try and make that file last longer. Yeah. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he had a nice job. He was a restaurant manager. Yeah, the thing about Alec is, you know, he was single. He lived on his own. His income prior to taxes was about $40,000. So he didn't qualify for assistance programs. He made too much to get a subsidy through the Affordable Care Act. So he was looking at a high deductible, mm-hmm. high premium plan. Yeah. And he made the decision. Unfortunately, he made the wrong decision, but he made one that he thought was right for him to forego the insurance, spend that insurance money on the insulin and when he went to the pharmacy the very first time he lasted 27 days without my insurance so when he went the very first time instead of it being a thousand dollars like we anticipated they told him it was 1300 he only had a thousand in his bank account and being the proud you know 26 year old trying to be independent young man Mm -hmm. he didn't call mom and dad for help he thought Maybe I can take a little bit less insulin. Maybe I can miss a dose. Maybe I can change my diet. Maybe I can stretch this out till payday. And unfortunately, his body was found three days prior to that payday. He didn't make it. James Holt and Nicole Smith-Holt telling the governor about their personal experience with insulin prices.
One in four type 1 diabetics are reporting in a recent study that they are rationing their insulin. It's playing Russian roulette with their lives. Mm -hmm. What is the reason they give that it's gone up 1,200%? Our wages mm -hmm. have not gone up 1,200%. Nothing has increased 1,200%. What's the reason? Their big re greed. Um, well, their reasoning is uh, they will blame the high deductible plans. That's one of their reasons. Their second reason is they blame the pharmacy benefit managers would be their second reason. Um, what are the research and development? Research and development. They say they will say when we say, well, why is it thirty dollars in Canada for this file when it's three hundred and forty in the U.S.? They'll say, well, the U.S. has to um, have all the money for research and development for all around the world, which I just don't buy it. That's Quinn Nystrom with the group Minnesota Insulin for All. Dr. David Trigel an endocrinologist with Park Nicollet Clinic told the governor list prices for insulin are going up because drug companies are paying rebates to insurance companies and pharmacy benefit managers to get their products included on formulary lists of approved drugs. The people who are affected by this high list price the most is going to be the uninsured patient who has to pay the full list price at the pharmacy counter. It's going to be patients on high deductible plans. Now approximately 40% of Americans are now on high deductible plans. Um, and then it's also going to be patients who um, hit the Medicare donut hole. Yeah. Um, you know, they're going to be, they're going to be uh, faced with it as well. Quinn Nystrom with Minnesota Insulin for All is critical of Senate Republicans' response after that agreement on an insulin assistance program fell apart right at the end of the legislative session. Let me be very clear. This bill cannot wait till next session. It cannot. And so I think this sort of lackadaisical kind of attitude about well, this bill, you know, there was a lot of bills to choose from, and that's just the way that it works. That doesn't work, because we have a solution that works to save lives. Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka responds, proposed ideas must be hammered out. Minnesota will get this right by working together. Not by using insulin access as a divisive political tool, Gazelka says. Governor Walls emphasizes insulin manufacturers must be part of the solution. We're certainly going to try and do everything we can to triage and, and help, but, but I'm not going to sit and watch people make uh, obscene profits, shift the cost back to the taxpayers of Minnesota, and then walk away with that money too, because the irony of that would be is we would use taxpayer monies to pay the very companies who aren't helping us to get the insulin to come back. Governor Tim Walls. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns in a minute. We asked kids what it took to be a dad. This is what they had to say. A father is always present. I mean, what, father, what real father figure can you have if they're not there? In order to be a good dad, you need to love, love your son. You need to put gas in your car so you don't break down in the middle of nowhere. And you need to make them breakfast. Yep. I mean, just to maybe um, play like a board game with me or to just stay home and play um, some video games with me. Just to do like that one little thing is what I really look forward to. I'm not asking him to be a perfect dad, but he should try. He's just a constant force in my life. There's no other type of love like a dad's love because it's not comparable to anything else. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4DAD411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. A recent spate of drug overdoses has Minnesota law enforcement issuing public safety alerts. I recently spoke with executive director of the nonprofit Steve Rumler Hope Network, Alexia Reed Holtum about this unique move by law enforcement and how the way we're handling the opioid epidemic is evolving. The opioid crisis across our country has taken decades for um, public health to get into a position where they were really stepping up and participating in the solutions. And part of that public health process is law enforcement. And the paradigm shift that we're seeing across our country is that law enforcement is aware and wanting to be part of the solution, and they no longer believe that the solution is going to be incarceration, but helping people to find pathways and avenues to treatment for the disease of addiction. So essentially, we're not surprised that we're seeing them start to, rather than um, being more of a threat, individuals that are steeped in the disease of addiction, we're seeing that law enforcement really wants to be a partner in helping create solutions to this public health crisis. So I'm not, I'm not surprised that they did that. We also know that the, um, the drug czar for our country has initiated a program, this OD mapping, that was distributed to law enforcement across the country and to um, public health institutions like hospitals and to some school systems so that first responders and individuals that are likely to be on scene or treat overdoses would know where those hotspots are, where are things, where is um, the crisis peaking if you will, where are the places where the majority of overdoses are happening, and they're able to see that in real time so that they can do something different about it instead of waiting until it's too late and we have a multitude of deaths. They're going to be able to be in those communities, be prepared, have the tools that they need, have the naloxone that they need, alert community organizations like ours, to say, hey, we want your people, your boots on the ground, citizens that are prepared to save lives, to be aware. We would like you to send out messaging to the community at large saying, if you are steeped in the disease of addiction, please get help. If you can't get help, at minimum, make sure that people are aware that you're using and that you have naloxone. And if you're a lay person and you feel that you have a family member who's in jeopardy of overdosing, whether it's illegal or legal drugs, get the resources that you need. They're available to you. Be trained on how to administer. So we're, I'm not surprised that we're seeing that. I am very pleased that we're seeing law enforcement be on the cutting edge of, in our state, be on the cutting edge, be in leadership roles to change and have a paradigm shift from treating individuals with the disease of addiction as if they have a moral failing, and rather than doing that, they're changing to the part of their mission, which is to serve, protect and serve, and they're really moving to a serve 
platform where they want to help community members, help communities as a whole, help our state and help our nation to have solutions. In terms of uh, practically uh, practical matters, how does a layperson get a hold of naloxone? Is it a fairly easy process? It's extremely easy. And so there's resources all around. And now I may um, think that it's easy because this is part of a, this is a program of ours and we've been operating it since 2014. So it feels to me like it's extremely easy. To individuals that don't know about it, it probably feels like there's multitudes of barriers, right? So here's where the, what they can do. There's a lot of choice. So one is that every single citizen in our state, every single individual in our state, regardless of background or age or um, demographic, you can call us or better yet, go to our website. And on our website, we have a map or a, a calendar of when we do training, where we're doing them. And you can come. And right now, that layperson training operates on a donation-only basis. You can remain anonymous. You can donate for the training. You will absolutely be able to leave with a kit. Not only will we train you, we'll give you the tools and the education, but you'll leave with the antidote. So you can do that. Every single person that has a doctor in this state can go to their doctor and ask their doctor to give them a prescription and your doctor should say absolutely no problem I'm happy to give you a prescription then you go to the pharmacy and you fill it there are multiple pharmacies that we're in relationship with there's multiple hospital systems that give out naloxone there are organizations other than ours that distribute naloxone that's shifting a little bit as the state um, finds new organizations to grant money to for those organizations to distribute the naloxone like they do with us. Um, and those are available to individuals. So the number one way that people can easily do this is if you go to our website or send us an email or give us a phone call, we're happy to assure you that you get connected and that you're able to come to one of our free trainings. Thank you to my guest, Executive Director of the nonprofit Steve Rumler Hope Network, Alexia Reed Holtum. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The death of two corrections officers last year in Minnesota triggered a push for safer prison reforms across the state. MNN's Tasha Radel has more. That's right, Scott. In the last legislative session, the Minnesota Department of Corrections asked state lawmakers to fund the hiring of 120 new officers in prisons statewide over the next two years. Commissioner Paul Schnell says while they didn't get funding to hire all 120 new officers, they did get approval to hire close to 80. Commissioner Schnell says while there's more work to be done, the ability to hire these new officers will go a long way toward making prisons safer for officers and inmates. We 
you know, over the past, uh, particularly since the last summer, um, and, and even prior to that, uh, uh, the deaths of the two officers at Oak Park Heights and at, at uh, Stillwater uh, last summer, um, there was a, uh, you know, we've, we've struggled to maintain staffing numbers of, of officers. And ultimately, um, we uh, made a, a request of the uh, legislature to uh, add additional personnel to bolster safety and security inside of our facilities. Um, the legislature, we were fortunate to um, uh, get 78 additional officers, um, 67 of those, which will start, uh, which the hiring is is in process for right now. Um, and you know, it's uh, these are really uh, important and critical jobs to Minnesota's public safety system. And, um, you know, they are um, really core to helping uh, with getting offenders um, in a position to come back to our communities um, better than they were when they went in. And, you know, I, I was going to ask you, obviously, when we have incidents uh, like what we've seen over the past years, that has a lot to do with, I guess, the numbers of officers uh, versus inmates. Is that fair to say? Well, I think, you know, the the ratios, you know, we, we don't focus so much on ratios. We focus on, on post or where a staff is needed um, and what's needed to, you know, when you think about a prison, everything that happens inside of a prison requires uh, officer safety and security personnel, you know, to monitor the movement of, of people from you know, housing units to programming units. So it, it really is a staff-intensive process. Um, but certainly, um Incidents like like uh, that that had occurred um, are things that that certainly influence and affect our ability to um, to recruit. However, it's really important that we know when we're fully the, the more close to fully staffed we are, the safer our facilities are, both for our staff as well as for the people we house there. And you know, with low unemployment rates, are you worried about filling these uh, initial sixty-seven officer positions? One of the things that you know we we we're not unconcerned. I mean, this is a, a trend, whether regardless of industry and regardless of circumstance. You know, we know that in Minnesota right now that um, there's really two candidates for almost every vacancy that exists, and so uh, that is a reality that we certainly face. I think that these positions, uh, while challenging work, you know, offer some incredible opportunities for people who um, who get into them. Um, you know, specifically, there's a, uh, an early retirement option and there's retiree health care. Um, and these benefits are available to these people because of the nature of the work and the challenges that they face. Um, and I think, you know, when we put this into perspective, um, that while uh, we want there to be no um, assaults on staff or, or, or incidents like that um, to occur, um, they are relatively and, and have been less common over the past the six to eight months, you know, which we're, uh, which we're grateful for, and we've really made a concerted effort to try and um, achieve. And, you know, for maybe someone that's listening today, what qualifications does one have to have, does an applicant have to have or a candidate need uh, to apply for a position like this in the state? Well, I think this, that's one of the things that makes these positions attractive. You can, you can enter this with, a, with literally with a high school diploma or a GED. We, need, you know, we seek people of, of good character who um, are, you know, are committed to making a difference. And, and I think the, the biggest thing is to remember that you know, you're really serving um, your, our neighbors because we know that 95% of the people in our prisons are going to come back to communities across our state 
and, um, and, and having them come out better is in everybody's interest. So we really look for service-minded people, um, and we provide training um, and, a, and a, a comprehensive academy pro, uh, process and then some um, supervision and on-the-job training. Um, and it can be an incredibly rewarding career with lots of different options. And then lastly, uh, the, the corrections department, um, how many facilities do you guys oversee? We have 10, 10 prison facilities across the state. We house about 10,000 um, uh, offenders in our facilities across the state uh, every day, and the Department of Corrections employs about 4,200 people on a full-time basis. Anything else you'd like to add today, Commissioner, that I didn't hit on? No, other than the fact that we certainly would, we would love to have people at least come and, and check out a career in the Department of Corrections um, because we, we need good people, um, and it's in Minnesota's best interest uh, to, to attract and, and retain them. And, uh, you know, for folks that want more information, is there a good place for them to go? Yeah, they can go right to our website and access it, the uh, application process. We're doing community. Now we're doing hiring uh, processes at several of our facilities um, uh, across the state, and that has proven to be very effective. Um, so, yeah, we, uh, you can contact HR, call into the Department of Corrections, or get on our website and, um, and make an application right there. Thanks again to my guest, Minnesota Department of Corrections Commissioner Paul Schnell. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. You wanted to see me? Yes, please, have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team, but... I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. We want to hire you. You're, you're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The Golden Gopher Athletic Department completed its four-city tour of Minnesota this week with a visit to Alexandria. The Gopher Coaches Caravan also made earlier stops in Owatonna, Delwood, and Chaska. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm was on the track and sat in the back of the bus with Gopher men's basketball coach Richard Patino to talk about the fan outreach, the summer and season ahead, and more. Talking with head coach Richard Patino, we're on the bus ride back from Alexandria. You have wrapped up the coach's caravan for uh, for this year. I know, one, it's always good to get it wrapped up because then it means you get on with the rest of your summer. But how important is it for you and your fellow coaches to, one, hang out together for a few you know different trips and, two, to, to connect with the fans? For, for us, it's, um, it's really good to kind of get out state because I think we all get locked into that Twin Cities uh, bubble a little bit and, and thank the fans because... Our fans are so loyal out state. I mean, some of these people drive two, three hours uh, for a basketball game in the middle of the week. Um, you know, so it's good to talk about our message and talk about how many good things are going on in all the sports, uh, but most importantly, thank them. 
and you have talked a lot on these trips about the importance of the fans and what they've meant and you've cited a couple of examples from last year the Nebraska home game the Purdue home game the NCAA game where they showed up big in Des Moines yeah I mean for me I didn't know much about Minnesota when I moved here and I thought those three games showed the spirit of this place I mean Nebraska it may not have been our biggest crowd, but it was one of the loudest I've had since I've been here. And what they did for Dupree McBrayer was, um, you know, something special. And Purdue at home, to have a lot of recruits in the building, you know, to rush the court, to just see the passion for it. And then Des Moines was uh, maybe one of the best NCAA tournament crowds that I've ever seen. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's a special place. I mean, it, they look at this university kind of as their baby. And um, it's very, very important for us to make sure that our fans understand why we do what we do, and a lot of it has to do with them. Now it's a busy time of year for you. Practice has started. Some of your, um, well, all the returning players are back for summer school, and now uh, some of the freshmen have enrolled and uh, are getting a head start. A lot of new faces, um, and you're losing three faces that had a lot to do with a lot of success. Um, three thousand-point scores in Jordan Murphy, Dupree McBrayer, and Amir Coffey. Um, you know, so you, you don't necessarily replace them, um, you know, but you've got to collectively, everybody's got to get a little bit better. And those returners, um, you know, those guys that have been here before, they've got to make sure that they kind of carry that load a little bit and, and teach these guys. Because you know what? We, we've been to two NCAA terms in three years. That's something to be proud of. We want to get back there. Uh, so we know what it is. It's hard. Uh, it's not necessarily complicated. But we need those guys in the locker room that have been there before to help the younger guys. What is the summertime now like, one, trying to get those new guys acclimated to, to the system a little bit, but also just getting used to class and college life, I suppose? You know, we're full bore um, just because we got so many new faces. I mean, I'm treating it like a normal practice. We go four times a week uh, for an hour a time. You get four hours on the court. Um, yeah, you gotta, you got to make sure that academically they're getting acclimated, socially getting acclimated. Um, but we don't have any time to waste. You know, we got to put in a whole new system with – when almost half your team is new, uh, you, you better teach over the summer. And so it's been a good opportunity. I mean, I, I'm lucky that we can work with them. And preparing for Italy is good. I mean, that's kind of a new season in itself that we're excited about. Uh, Amir Coffey and Jordan Murphy uh, were within a couple of weeks now the NBA draft. A possibility, one or both, or neither, I guess, of their names is, uh, would be called. How important is it, one, uh, that... that you know, they, they obviously you want to have them have a good future, but how do you look at that in terms of how it can also help your program for the future if they do have good futures? It's very, very important for you to win. You get you got to win, and obviously we've been winning, but you need individuals to have individual success, all conference players, uh, all freshman players, um, but then go on to make money playing the game they love and then us be able to reference back to, okay, Amir Coffey stayed in college for three years and he got drafted. Uh, Jordan Murphy, obviously, with what he did, um, you know, from a statistical standpoint, is amazing. And then what he's going to do after basketball. And the fact that we get players better. Um, I mean, Jordan Murphy came as a three-star athlete and going to go down as one of the most productive players ever played in the Big Ten. Amir got better. Guys are getting better. And, you know, when you're at a place long enough, you can reference back to those things because that's the most important thing. Families, recruits, they've got to trust that you're going to get their, their son better. And I think we've showed that. It's Richard Patino on a bus ride. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's Gopher men's basketball coach Richard Patino and MN sports director Mike Grimm. That's going to do it for our show this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.